the end of the beginning part one. This will be a two-part series. Then we'll take a break for Easter. Then there will be another off week. Then we'll come back and whatever's left over in Mark, I'll finish it then. But two weeks, we'll be talking about the end of the beginning. Because we know that the end of Jesus' earthly life is only a beginning. The end of Jesus' life as he dies on the cross is a new beginning. It is the beginning of the resurrection. It is the beginning of the gospel message of a Savior who died and rose again for our sin. It is the beginning of God making all things new. It is the beginning of the church. And so very much the end of Jesus' life is not an end at all. And this morning we're going to see three things that happen on the cross. Three things. Atonement, abandonment, and access. We'll give you each as they go. Atonement, abandonment, and access. Next week we're going to see allegiance and astonishment. Right? So all A's. Because we like A's. Right? We like to get an A. So atonement, abandonment, access. Okay? So the first one is atonement. If you have God's word, take it and turn with me to Mark 15, verse 33, where we see this theme of atonement come out through the background. And the imagery that Mark gives us. Mark 15, starting in verse 33, I'll give you a moment to turn there. Mark 15, starting in verse 33. And I'm going to read to you verses 33 or 39, where we will see atonement, abandonment, and access. Mark 15, verse 33, Mark writes this. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. May God bless the reading of his word. The first point that we see this morning once again is atonement. We see this in verse 33. Atonement is a big word that refers to satisfying the wrath of God. Atonement is key here because atonement is what Passover is all about. Remember that this is Passover week. And there he hangs on the cross, Jesus Christ, our true and better Passover lamb. The Passover was celebrated by the Jews, and each time they celebrated, it was a temporary atonement. The Passover symbolized Jesus, what pointed to Jesus, which was lambs without blemish. Thousands of lambs being slaughtered, and that blood would offer a temporary forgiveness, but it would point back to the first Passover, and there our Lord being the true and better Passover, the final official Passover, and this is Passover week. And atonement is happening. And so this points you back to Exodus chapter 10. Keep in mind that Jesus is on the cross, and he has to die by 3 p.m. Because 3 p.m. was when all of the Passover lambs were slain in all of Israel. 
to remember what happened in Exodus chapter 10. In Exodus chapter 10, this is the final plague before the Passover lamb, before the judgment of God. The wrath of God would go through Egypt. And on that night, the wrath of God would take the life of every firstborn, of every household of Egypt, unless you took shelter under the blood of the lamb, symbolically. Unless you took the blood of a lamb, a, a real lamb, and you spread that blood upon the wooden doorpost of your house, and symbolically, then as all of Egypt experienced God's wrath and judgment, and as the house of Pharaoh experienced the wrath of God, every house that took the shelter under the blood of the Passover lamb would be passed over and their firstborn would live. And this was the judgment, the wrath of God, the judgment that led Pharaoh to say, it's enough. Moses, take your people and go. And so it was through the Passover lamb that Israel was delivered from physical slavery. And here we are once again. So Exodus 10, 22, Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. It's different here on the cross, but there's darkness. This darkness symbolizes the judgment of God and the Passover being fulfilled. Only it's only three hours. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And so Jesus hung there, bearing our sin. And his blood, not on wooden doorposts, but on a wooden cross. And he's there. And he has to bear God's judgment. The skies turn dark. And instead of people physically dying, it is our Savior. Paul tells us that for our sake, God made Christ, he who knew no sin, to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And the only way that we receive forgiveness, the only way that we can stand in fellowship with God is because Christ became sin, completely innocent. He is like the perfect lamb of God without blemish, right? No sin, completely innocent. And so you had to be, it had to be an innocent savior. Now the sixth hour is noontime and the ninth hour is 3 p.m. So this is Friday, and Jesus died on 3 p.m. Friday. And what that tells us is that the sun goes dark from 12 to 3. That just doesn't make sense. I mean, you and I, when we pass away, unless there's rain, the sky doesn't just turn completely dark. And so this is not a solar eclipse because the context of Passover tells us that calendar-wise, Passover would have been attended with a full moon. <clears throat> And I'm not a scientist, but those of you who are, you know that when there's a full moon, this means it would be impossible for a natural eclipse to occur. And so this is a supernatural darkness that fell over the land. And it reminds us of Amos chapter 8, verse 9. Almost literally, it's reminiscent of this, this, this prophecy in Amos that talks about the day of the Lord. and talks about God's judgment. And in Amos 8, 9... It said, and on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down, when? At noon. 
and darken the earth in broad daylight. And so because our sin goes against the very core of God's being, our sin is being born. Jesus Christ is bearing all of our sin to the point where God's judgment is there and God cannot bear to look upon his son. And this leads us to point number two, the cry of abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does it mean to be forsaken? What does it mean to be forsaken? Literally it says forsaken. And forsaken means to be abandoned temporarily. But God is still present. Right, so we're going to talk about this. Point number two is abandonment. God is present in his judgment. The Father, his judgment upon the Son. God is present in the Son of God working on the cross. The Son of God on the cross is still the Son of God. He's present. And people ask, where is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit's at work converting the thief on the cross. The Holy Spirit was at work converting Simon of Cyrene. The Holy Spirit will be at work converting the centurion. The, the presence of God is there, but it's different. The person who's experienced this complete separation from God the Father, who he's never experienced before, is the Son. And so there is an exchange between the Father and the Son, and it is an exchange of judgment that no one understood more than the Son because the Son himself is God. And so this cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want you to think deeply about this cry because none of us have ever tasted the true and full weight of this cry. This cry is the cry of the damned in hell. This cry is the cry of people who are ignorant to the fact that all their lives, even though they didn't believe in God, they were still experiencing the common grace of God, oxygen, life the goodness of God, the kindness of God through people and the church and believers. And so anything that's good, because human beings are still created in the image of God, even evil people are created in the image of God. It is sin that mars the image of God. And because people, even the vilest of sinners, bear the image of God, there is still a degree of goodness in this world. We call this common grace. But in hell, there is no common grace. God is completely, only his judgment is there. There is no fellowship with God at all. And at that point, every person who refused to turn to Christ as their Savior will cry, my God, my God, I didn't believe in you, but now I see that you're real. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you completely abandoned me into hell? Right? This is the cry of hell, and Jesus Christ bears this for anyone who would believe in him. You see, Look at verse 34. It says, At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And the Bible translates this for us. Mark says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, what happens is that God cannot bear to look upon his son as the son bore all the shame and guilt of a criminal. Just imagine all of us are daughters and sons if you're alive. And if you were accused of the most heinous crimes in the world and multiple crimes. But Jesus is accused of every crime he bears. But if you were to be accused of the worst crimes in this world, no doubt your parents would still love you, but could they claim you? Could they look upon you and say, yeah, that's my son, that's my daughter? You know, parents, you have your children, and you love them, and you still love them no matter what they do, but... It'll break your heart. It'll shatter your heart. You won't be able to look upon them because you love them so much. 
Your heart filled with anger, but love. It is the love that creates the anger, right? If you're a parent and your child commits a heinous crime, it is the love for them that creates the anger. It is not a cold anger. It is not an evil anger. It is love. And you cannot bear to look upon your son or your child. You know, I always used to get in trouble as a kid in elementary school. I would always be in the principal's office. I was the principal's favorite. And, and my mom, would, they would have her on speed dial, and she would come, and she'd be so embarrassed every time. Yeah, that's my son. And sometimes she just wouldn't pick me up, right? And, and she would, she, one time she actually said, I was in junior high, and I got suspended for fighting. And my, and my mom told them, make him walk home. Make him walk home. Because enough is enough. But who is it that the father would look at us and say, yeah, that's my own. It's only because of Christ. And that's, that will help you understand a God who is loving. And because he's loving, he has to be wrathful. But his wrath does not come on us. It will come on us if we don't have Christ. But what makes him ultimately loving is that he pours out his wrath upon his son. And that's why he cannot bear to look upon his son for three hours because his son is bearing all the shame on the world, all the sin in the world. And we know the Bible tells us that, that God cannot fellowship with sin. He knows no sin, right? And so Jesus cries out, Psalm 22. You see, David in Psalm 22, he felt forsaken, but he wasn't ever fully forsaken. The son of God is temporarily actually forsaken. David, in his moment of testing and trial, cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. That's David, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus cries out, literally experiencing Abandonment from God the Father temporarily <clears throat> as he is accomplishing the work of God and the plan of God. David felt forsaken. Christ was forsaken. You know, you think of this and you think of the maturation of your Christian identity and faith. Just think, when you're a new Christian and if you're a new Christian, it's, it's a wonderful feeling, right? And, and when you think of the cross, the physical suffering stands out at you when you're a new Christian. You, you, you think, how can someone, and why would they be crucified and tortured for me, for my sin? I don't deserve it. And, and that physical suffering just is, is just amplified because it creates a sensory experience for us. You understand the sensory experience. If, if you and I have never gotten hurt and you say Christ was crucified, it means nothing to us. But if you've ever got a paper cut or you've skinned your knee or you've scraped your knee and you've bled or you've broken a bone because you've fallen, then crucifixion makes sense to you. It grabs at the sensory feeling of your heart, but that's the new believer. At first, the worst thing in the world is physical torture and, you, and your heart is moved. But as you go through life, you realize there is a greater torture than physical torture. Why do people get lonely? Why do people go into solitary confinement and they're left alone and they go crazy? Why do we feel our hearts are empty, even if we can have everything? Even as Christians, we go through life, you're like, I have Jesus, I, but there's something in my heart, there's something that's missing. There's something deeper. It's because we were created, like I said, as image bearers of God. We were created as human beings with a soul. 
We have hearts. We are spiritual beings, not just physical beings. So the more you mature in Christ, the more you understand the suffering of Christ. I don't understand it fully yet, but I know that as I get older, and maybe when I'm sick and I can't move anymore and I can't rely on myself, i got to rely on other people, and, and all I have left then is whatever family, whatever love, whatever relationship, and Christ. Right? It's on your deathbed that you, that you really understand the words, all I have is Christ. And your, your body is physically gone. It's just your soul waiting to see. And I'm, I'm far from there. But some of you, you see that nearer and nearer and nearer. And you understand what it means, right? The suffering that Christ went through. Because what are you afraid of? You're afraid of eternity in separation from God in separation from love, in eternity where your soul is empty. That's the abandonment. That's the forsakenness. So the deeper you grow in Christ, the more you understand what Calvin taught us. John Calvin, the second greatest theologian, right? The first Jesus, that doesn't count. The second, you know, then you have Paul, the greatest theologian ever. The second is John Calvin. And maybe Wayne Grudem comes in at a third. I'm just kidding. All right, we're all theologians. But Calvin said, if Christ had died only a bodily death, it would have been ineffectual. Unless his soul shared in the punishment, he would have been a redeemer of bodies alone. And he is a redeemer of of bodies, the physical resurrected body. But the deeper punishment that he bore was an emotional and spiritual torment of being completely alone, which once again, you and I have never experienced You know, loneliness is something that a lot of people struggle with. It is a deep struggle more and more today. And it's amazing that we live in a world where we're more digitally digitally connected than ever through social media. Yet we feel lonelier than ever. And our intern, a young adult, our intern, Gabe Lee, wrote a series of blog articles on the topic of loneliness. And I've read them. Well, I browsed over them and, and this morning I said, I better read them again. So I read them again. And there's a series of them and it, it, it touches my heart and I commend it to you. Please read it. It's on our website under blogs. Just find it somewhere. If you've ever felt lonely, it's not hell, but God gives us this feeling of loneliness because it's a tiny taste, just a tiny, tiny taste of what life will be like apart from the giver of life. When we get lonely, it's not real loneliness. It feels real, but what Christ went through is an emotional torment that just, that's just we will never fathom. We, I can't even preach about what it will be like. And that's why he cried this cry of abandonment. Go back to verse 35 and 37 of our passage. Notice that as he cries, the people don't understand it. They hear Aloy, Aloy, and they think he's calling for Elijah. Right, so verse 35, it says, when some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, behold, he's calling Elijah, Aloy, Aloy. And someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him some to drink. And some commentators will say that the sour wine was like a soldier's Gatorade. It was like sour wine, and they were just like, give him something to drink so maybe he could stay alive longer, and we want to see Elijah come because there was this prophetic belief that Elijah would come prior to the Messiah. And so let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And then in, in Mark 15, 37, Jesus dies. 
Right? So, so contrary to their expectation that, and their hope that Elijah would come, Jesus uttered a loud cry, and we know from other places in Scripture that Jesus cried, it is finished. The work of God is done. The sins of man is for, forgiven for those who would believe. The work is finished. The definite atonement is complete. Man will be justified, right? It is finished. And, he, and then he died. He breathed his last. So where does this theme of abandonment show up in our lives? What lessons do we learn? Because this is powerful and you've got to think about this. Don't just gloss over it. David in Psalm 22 and Jesus teach us something very important. And what we understand, because we're spiritual beings with a soul, and because apart from God we are imperfect, Psalm 22 in Christ, Psalm 22 in David, and Mark 15 in Christ show us that it is okay to cry out to God. It's not abnormal to cry out to God. God doesn't promise to deliver us from the experience of suffering. And he expects us to cry out, my God, my God, why do I feel like you've forsaken me? Why do I feel like you're, you're not here? You notice that God doesn't take away the suffering, right? He doesn't promise us you won't have disease or you won't have emotional pain or you won't feel lonely or that people won't hurt you or people won't stab you in the back or, or that you won't go through, you know, accidents, that you won't break your bones. He doesn't promise any of that. But he has given us an example in Christ who has experienced a suffering far greater than we will ever. Thus, Christ understands us and invites us to cry out to him because even he cried out. Even Christ cried out to God. That's what he was doing for us on the cross. In the same way, God does not promise us to deliver us from seasons where we feel abandoned. Instead, we can be sure that even though we will feel abandoned, that he will never abandon us. Like I mentioned, the unbeliever is never fully abandoned. They might think there is no concept of God, but they're never fully abandoned because they have common grace, right, until they die. For the believer, you're never abandoned. David was never really abandoned by God. Only Christ was abandoned. You see, you experience a small taste of divine abandonment, like I said, every time you're lonely. And we'll come back to this in the application. That it is not that Jesus promises that we won't suffer at all. It is actually the suffering that makes all things new. It, the scars don't disappear. What moves us is not that Jesus' scars disappeared or that, that somehow the angels took them off the cross. What moves our hearts is that the scars are still there and the scars tell a story. The scars tell a story that resonate with all of us. When you look upon Jesus' scars, you see your suffering. You see your pain. You see that even as a child, if you were abused, even as a child, if you were abandoned, even as, a, as an adult, if you were hurt, even as you struggle with your anger, even as you bear the scars of chemotherapy, even as, you, as, as your disease doesn't go away every time you go to the doctor, even as your tumor doesn't go away, you're wearing the scars. It's not the deliverance from the scars that saves. It's the hope 
that through the scars, the gospel on the cross is proclaimed. Is that not the Savior that we sing to? Is that not the Savior that we sing hallelujah? What a Savior. That's the union with Christ. That is the identity in Christ. That is the maturation in Christ. That is the meaning of Christ in me is to live, to die, is to gain. He doesn't take away the pain, the past, the sins still come. So sometimes you're like, man, I thought I accomplished the sins. I still have this sin from my past. And Jesus says, look, you know, you've grown a little, but you're trying to live on your own. It's not that the marks of sin completely disappear. It is the sin being constantly redeemed that reminds us that we never, we never can graduate from the gospel, that we always need Christ. It is Christ that we turn to. It is Christ that is amplified, not us. It is the power of Christ that comes through our scars. It is the gospel that changes our hearts. And that is how he breathed his last. When he breathed his last, life is proclaimed for all of us. It is so powerful. And the death of Christ marks an end a spiritual abandonment for those who would believe in Christ and surrender to him as Lord. And this leads us to what we receive, point number three, which is access. So you see this morning atonement. The wrath of God had to be satisfied because God is a loving God. And it's because of love that he has to deal with sin, right? And he deals with sin by pouring upon his, cro- his, his son on the cross. And that wrath, that atonement involved abandonment temporarily because abandonment is what we all deserve and abandonment is something that we will never experience unless you're in hell right and so because he was abandoned we are not abandoned and we are given access we see this in verses 38 and 39 it's symbolized through the tearing of the veil in the temple look at verse 39 verse 30 Verse 38 first, it says, And the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to bottom. Then verse 39, When the centurion who was standing right in front of Christ saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. First, the veil. This curtain was, was not some cheap curtain that you can find um, I don't know, on the cell rack at Bad, uh, Bed Bath & Beyond. I love that store because it's affordable. And they always send those 20% coupons in the mail. And, and you're not going to find a, a temple veil there, right? This was a thick t- curtain that's meant to be a partition. And it was meant to separate. It was meant to communicate something. And what it, it's meant to be communicated to, to us is that you can't access God. You can't come to God because he's completely holy. If you come into his presence as sinners, he can't have fellowship with you. He's going to kill you just like he poured out his wrath upon his son. You're going to die. In fact, only the high priest can go in there during certain times. And if the high priest was sinful, he would drop dead in the presence of God. And so there was this veil that separated the inner part of the temple, which symbolized God's presence from the people. And as this curtain tore from top to bottom. This is telling you that no human being could have torn it. Uh, top to bottom means it was a complete tear. It didn't tear halfway from the, from the, you know, from the side. It was a complete tear. And, and that tells us the complete tear and that no human could do it from top to bottom shows us that God tore this curtain. It was a symbol that now not only Gentiles but all sinners have access to God. Jewish people who would come to Christ, Gentiles would come to Christ, and it's, 
And it's amazing that the first person after the tearing of the temple that confesses Christ is a Roman centurion. We'll talk more about the Roman centurion in terms of his allegiance and the switch of his allegiance from Caesar to Christ. That's a big deal. We'll talk about that next week. But I just want you now to think and to envision and just to ponder what went through his mind. This centurion was a hardened man. A centurion was not just a foot soldier. A centurion oversaw a century of people, right? That's not the proper usage, but it helps you understand. A century. How long is a century? A hundred? So this is, a, this is a, a leader over other military soldiers. He's a tough guy. And we know from Mark that the soldiers were mocking Christ. And so, like I said, where is the spirit? The spirit's moving. Because I can just imagine, put yourself there with the centurion. Right, you're successful You've gone through a lot in life. Why would you need Christ? Who's this bloody man? And all of a sudden, the way that he breathed his last, an innocent Savior, all of a sudden, behold the man upon a cross. That had to be what he thought. Behold this man upon the cross. My sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed. I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. He too mocked Christ. So you can understand the centurion. And finally it hit him, just like the moment it hits us. It was my sin. He was innocent. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath, the way he breathed his last, his dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I know that the way I have to live my life on my own merit is finished. I know that the law cannot save me. I know I'm not good enough. I know that, that sin reigning over me is finished. I know that the work of God is finished. The wrath of God was held out against me, and the wrath of God was poured out upon an innocent Savior. Oh, how deep the Father's love for us conveyed through the cross. And so the big idea of this morning's message is Christ atoned for our sin while being abandoned on the cross so that we could have access to God. Christ atoned for our sin while being abandoned on the cross so that we could have access to God. Once again, where does this look like in our lives. I want to expand on two further applications. I want you to think about the concept of God's wrath because that's what Jesus was bearing and I want you to think of anger. All of us struggle with anger but the reason why we can understand anger is because we're created in the image of God. Anger can be righteous. We are created to love God and to be bothered by the things that hinder us from God and the things that go against God and sin mars that. There's different types of anger. David Paulison in his book, Good and Angry, which I commend to you, talks about all, all types of anger. 
You know, just because you don't get explosive doesn't mean you don't struggle with anger. There's hot anger, there's irritation, there's bitterness, there's silent anger, all types of anger. But at the heart of anger, I want you to think of why we get angry. We get angry because something that you and I value gets attacked. And sometimes our values are marred by sin. So, so you can be valuing the wrong things and someone threatens that and you get angry. But let's just talk about the times when we become angry because we see injustice happen. You see injustice in this world, and you ought to become angry because if you're apathetic, it communicates a lack of love. Right? If you say, I don't care at all that innocent people are dying, that, that's something wrong with you. We call that delusional. We call that deranged. We call that insane. Right? Anger moves us. But when you think of why you become angry, someone hurt you, someone lied to you, someone betrayed you. Why? It's sin. It's their sin against you, or, and it's your sin. It's sin. And if you can understand the fact that we all get angry, don't sit there and say, I don't struggle with anger, okay? All of us get angry. You ever get irritated on the freeway? Yeah, okay. Right? All of us struggle with angry. You're, you're upset about the Lakers this year? I am. Not that angry about it, but it hurts me. Wasted a year. Forget the King James. We should have went ESV. Wasted a year. All right? You get angry, right? You think about that. If you struggle with anger, you will not sit there and be apathetic. You will say, someone has to do something about this. That's what you're really saying when you're angry, right? Even if it's your own sin, people who recognize that they struggle with anger get the most angry at themselves when they get angry. And so you're sitting there hopeless and saying, someone has to do something about this. Sin, this injustice or this person hurting me, that's why you get angry. You react because your values are being attacked. But you see what the object of, of, of what anger is at? It's sin. Your sin, someone else's sin. And for God to do nothing about it makes no sense. And that's why when people say, you know what, a wrathful God doesn't make sense to me, I say a God without wrath makes no sense to me. How can a loving God not be angry? How can a loving God not get angry? That's how we see biblically, that God's anger is completely pure, completely righteous. We were created in the image of God. If we didn't have sin, our anger would be like his anger. And so you can see yourself before the cross now. God, someone has to do something about sin. Sin is a problem. Sin is a problem that we can't just point at other people and say they're sinners. When we look upon the cross, sin is our problem. It is a problem that we bear. It is a problem that we have. And someone had to do something about it. Because when we get angry, we get more angry at ourselves. It is a self-destructive sin. It's a disease. It kills us. And someone has to do something about it. And so God does something about it, which he pours out his judgment upon sinners. And you see it in the Old Testament. Just judgment upon evil, flood, right, wiping out sinners because he's loving and he cannot see people just kill themselves and corruption. And so then the most loving thing becomes, God, someone has to deal with this sin. And he says, I put my son on the cross to deal with that sin. And that's the power of the gospel being poured out upon Christ on the cross. And then he deals with that sin. But here's what I referred to earlier. Beloved, 
Just because Jesus deals with our sin doesn't mean the effects of sin go away. So I want to help you this morning. One of the most discouraging things for a Christian is to follow Jesus and then just to realize, man, I can't get over my addictions. I can't get over my sin problem. The marks of sin are still upon me. What do I do? And you hear pastors and you hear people well-meaning saying, go back to the cross. That's actually the answer. The passage this morning is the answer, but we know it's much deeper than that. Because what happens at the cross is sinners find mercy. Sinners are reminded that in the midst of seeing the effects of our sin, we have two choices. We have one choice to run and try to deal with that sin ourselves, which, which will end up crying in guilt and shame or running so far away from God thinking that no one can help us, which is a delusion in of itself, or we stay there at the foot of the cross and we experience the mercy of being made new. It's a humbling thing to come to grips with the reality that the marks and the scars of the sin in our lives never fully disappear until we get to heaven. But the sin is meant to drive us back to the cross. That's why we keep taking communion. That's why the cross never disappears. That's why we always completely remember that his mercy is more stronger than darkness. New every morning do we go before the cross every morning. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is much more. And that mercy keeps coming and coming and coming. And the more we understand the mercy, the more we realize we don't deserve it. And the more we realize we don't deserve it, the more our gratitude cries out and we understand what repentance looks like. Repentance is not feeling bad about our sin and just staying there in shame and guilt. Repentance is not just sitting there and saying, I feel bad for a moment. Repentance is you feel bad and you look upon the cross and you see your sin and you feel the remorse and you realize that you were a scoffer, but then the joy comes in the morning. The joy comes in seeing that the Savior resurrected, that our sins put him on the cross. Our sins nailed him there, but for, but for uh, temporarily. And it was our sins that nailed him, and then our sins caused him to die, the judgment of God. Then he rose from the dead, and we forget about the victory, the Sundays are coming. And every Sunday, it's a reminder that our sons our sins are forgiving because the sun is risen. So this morning, we preach forgiveness because of the cross. That's the power. So once again, the power is not the trials disappear. The power is not the effects of sin disappear. The power is that through the wounds, through the scars, we are being made new by, a, by Christ who hung on the cross. And if you don't have Christ this morning, it begins and ends. Everything end, begins and ends with the gospel. The gospel is that we were sinners separated from God, but Christ came. He paid our penalty on the cross. He died and he rose again. And if you believe in him, not just mental sense, not just a mental thought, but if you believe in him in a sense of confessing that you are a sinner in need of his grace, if you repent and ask him to change your life, if you surrender to his lordship and live for him, he will save you. Not just from eternity, but he begins to save you now. So beloved, turn to Christ. Let's pray. Father, 
we behold you on the cross. We see how deep your love is for us in Christ. We understand what it's like to be in the shoes of the centurion to recognize that we were guilty, but you were innocent. That our sin hung upon your shoulders as you bore the wrath of God. But Lord, as you cried, it is finished. It is a victory cry. And then you rose from the dead, reminding us that we're forgiven and we have life. Help us, Lord, live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.